0: Hey, this is Neil Bawa, the Mad Scientist of Multifamily, and you're listening to The Mailbox Money Show with Bronson Hill. This is The Mailbox Money Podcast, and I am Bronson Hill. As a busy professional, I wrestled with how to grow my income without taking up more of my precious time. I learned that managing real estate, actively trading stocks, or being unable to scale up investments is not passive investing. This is the place where you'll discover new asset classes, develop investing skills, and learn from experts how to become financially free with less work than you thought possible. And now, get ready for truly passive income. All right. so. I am so excited about this interview. This is Paul Moore, a good friend of mine, great guide, author, does all kinds of stuff on Bigger Pockets, and you're gonna love what he has to share. He's got a couple of amazing books out, one on multifamily, one of the first books I ever read, if not the first book I read on multifamily called The Perfect Investment. Then he moved from that to go from the perfect investment to the more perfect investment, which he considers to be self-storage. What you're gonna love about this interview is just the way that he breaks things down very simply. He talks about vetting deals, and they vetted something like 247 different operators, over the last six months, how they did that, what they're looking for, and how you can take advantage of his learning and just how he structured things. I think it's really super interesting as a passive investor. Uh, talked about RV parks and uh, mobile home parks and self storage. So super great. So let's jump in. Welcome to the Mailbox Money Show. This is Bronson Hill. I'm here with Paul Moore, who is a good friend, great friend of mine, who basically works and does all kinds of stuff within, he started in multifamily. He is now doing self-storage, wrote a book called The Perfect Investment. It was actually one of the first books I read, if not the first book first book I read on multifamily investing a number of years ago. He's written another book called Storing Up Profits. It's about self-storage. So he went from the perfect investment to another investment that's better than perfect. Um, he's yeah. a part of Welling's Capital Group. That's right. And like I mentioned, bigger pockets. So we're going to talk about uh, how to vet uh, operators and deals in today's market. Paul, it's always great talking with you. How are you doing today?
1: Man, it's great to be
0: here. I'm doing great.
1: Thank you. Awesome, man. Well, I know I see you
0: everywhere. You're doing all kinds of stuff. I admire how much content you put out there, how, you know, just how well spoken you are. It's always great to hear you uh, share. So, why don't you give people that don't know you just a bit of your background and who you are and uh, uh, what your involvement in real estate is?
1: Yeah, so I sold my company in 97 to a public firm, moved to Virginia, started a nonprofit organization, got bored pretty quick, started flipping houses, then flipping lots at a resort. I built 7 or 8 houses, which was a huge mistake for a guy who doesn't know how to <laughs> tighten my own doorknob. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And uh then uh got into commercial real estate about after about 10 or 11 years of that. And uh, like like you said, I got into multifamily syndication and thought I had the perfect investment. But you know what, Bronson, I realized that the perfect investment's not perfect if you have to overpay, if you have to over leverage, if you have to use risky debt, and if you have to assume continually rising rents and decreasing expenses. And I'm not saying everybody did that. I mean, you and I both know wonderful multifamily syndicators who didn't. But I was becoming increasingly tempted. And yeah. I thought, you know, I just don't really see that this is the best path for me. And in, in fact, I also thought, you know, as a as a as an investor, I need diversification. And so I was tempted again to get involved in self-storage and then mobile home parks. And I thought, there's no way. I mean, I read the one thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papazon. You did too. And you know you can't be great, I mean, truly great at a bunch of different things, especially at my age. So we decided to be, build a fund and we're on fund number six now. And our goal is to be diversified across different asset types, geographies, strategies, places in the capital stack, and of course, the best operators we can find in each asset type. So yeah, let's talk about that
0: for a minute, because I know um, when you write a book, called the perfect investment. And it really is an excellent book. People have not read it. It's a great book about multifamily. Um, you know, it's interesting when you only have one asset, um, you know, there's a saying I used to do medical device sales and they say, you know, if you're a surgeon, uh, or, you know, if if let's say whatever you do, that's, uh, what you always see. So for example, if you only have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Right. So if you only have one asset that you work with, everything, oh, it's got to be this, it's got to be this. And multifamily's gone from being a very in favor asset, very in vogue, very to, to being a very out of favor and very quickly within about a year, year and a half. It's kind of like multifamily investors are are struggling. And we've got a couple of deals that are struggling. Um, how did you, and again, they always say it's better to be early than it is to be late, right? If there's some sort of move or things happen, or whatever. So you obviously were a little early, you moved a few, a couple of years early there's a more a run up in multifamily, but what were some of the reasons that you made that switch into self storage from the perfect investment to a more perfect investment?
1: Mm-hmm. I don't really think self storage is more perfect. And I know you're, you're being tongue in cheek and so am I we're smiling here if you're just listening to this, <laughs> but in all seriousness um, I, I I like um, I, I like the fact that while multifamily was just so popular and so many new operators were just jumping right in. There are so many guru training courses. Um, and um, self-storage, you know, had one or two training courses. And, they, they're, you know, there are fifty-two to 54,000 facilities in the U.S. And half of those are owned by a single operator, by, you know, a single asset operator. A lot of those are mom and pop. And so we, like we invested in one last week that was in a beautiful location at quote, Maine and Maine in a downtown area, but the rents were almost, you know, were just a little over 50% of market rents Mm -hmm. for the whole city. And uh, they're 99% occupied, no surprise. (laughs) But when you get these mom and pop run self-storage assets, there is potential upside. Uh, And another thing I liked is, you know, in self-storage is, if I raise your rent on a multifamily unit, you know, let's say you're paying two thousand a month for a, a rent in rent, if I raise that ten percent, you might move out rather than pay the extra two hundred dollars a month. But if you're paying hundred dollars for a storage unit and I raise your rent ten by ten percent, and it's a monthly lease, you're probably not going to get a U-Haul, get your friends together uh you know and spend your weekend just to move your junk excuse me your treasures down the street <laughs> just to save you know 10 dollars a month especially when the guy down the street might raise theirs 10 bucks next month and so it's got a sort of a different stickiness and dynamic and that's one of the things i like but to be clear what i like more is the diversification across multiple great what i would consider great recession resistant hopefully asset types yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it
0: is interesting. Um, uh, I, I love what you shared. Because yeah, if you're 50% down on rent, you can raise rent 10% right away. And then like every six months, you can probably raise it 10% until you get close to market. And people aren't going to, you know, because people are going to say, well, do I really want to go move it and go pay more money somewhere else? Or maybe, I mean, we, how, what's the plan to raise rents or something like that? Do you do it at 10% every six months until you're kind of close to market? Or what, what's the plan usually?
1: Yeah, so let's say the rent on that, let me just use real numbers. The rent on that, I believe, uh, was 151 a month. And the market rent was like, no, I think it was 131. And market rent was 250. Oh, wow. And so to get from 130 to 250, and actually they couldn't go further because it's a higher quality asset in a better location, 99% occupied. But anyway, to get there, they'd probably go, 50% of the distance in one day. In one day. Okay. Because they know that, you know, I mean, that there's going to be a very low move out at that point. But think about this. Let's say 10 or 20% of the people move out. Guess what? They can charge and those 10 or 20% now vacant, they can charge market rate on those. Yeah. And so it's not a bad thing to see a move out when you're moving like that. So let's say 50% of the way in one day, Three to six months later, another 20%. Three to six months later, another 20%. So you're at 90% of market in about, I believe that would put you at about a year, year and a half. Wow, that's amazing. So, how do you, how do you, I know you, we talked about this before on the call. You don't
0: actually operate these yourself, which has been great that you, uh, you know, my book came out called Fire Yourself, Replace Your Working Income with Passive Income in three years or less. So it's the idea of how do you scale, but you've even done this and we do this as well. We partner with great operators. Um, how do you identify great operators in what you do?
1: Yeah, that, that's tough. Um, we recently did a count and said, okay, we we just said we just interviewed, we just reviewed 247 operators with deals uh, in a six month period, and out of the 247, we said no to 242. Um, following Warren Buffett Buffett's footsteps, steps I hope if I can pronounce it right. Uh, Warren said, um, great investors say no a lot. The greatest investors say no almost all the time. Yeah. And we're trying to do that. So we do due diligence. We try to see you know, how long they've been in the business. We check out their track record, their team. We fly in to meet their team. We fly out to see their asset, usually once announced and then often once unannounced that it may be the same or a different asset. Um, we do deep criminal background checks, not only on them, but the individuals in their company and not only that, but their property managers and their lenders. If they have, you know, if they have Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae, it's one thing, but if they have a small lender, let's say, um, so for example, a mobile home park might have a lender for the park, but a chattel lender for the mobile homes. Well, we'll check out them. We'll do a background check on them. And once recently, we found out one of them had a serious record of fraud mm-hmm. and have been in jail for financial fraud in real estate. And we're like, time out. We do not want to do business with you if they're going to stay involved. And so um, we you know, check out how much skin they have in the game, how much they cash of their own that they have to lose. Uh, of course, we're checking out their underwriting. Uh, Their lending, you know, we want to see them like that deal I mentioned in New Mexico about three minutes ago, that was uh, all cash deal. Chances are that operator will stabilize it over, like I said, 12 to 18 months and bring up their, you know, value significantly and then add conservative debt. So we're checking out their debt. We're checking out their, uh, you know, their, their, their plans, their strategy uh, and a lot more. We even do an NOI audit now on most of our deals. So an NOI audit would be having a third party come in and trace the money, follow it to see if the net operating income that they're reporting is really what they're saying. Yeah, that's great, man. That's uh,
0: now. How do you? I'm just curious. When you obviously for an individual, this would be hard to do. But for those that listening, maybe they're trying to uh, do a fund, they do something similar. How do you find two hundred and 47 groups to audit or, or to to do this over 6 months. Are you just every one you can basically hear about, you're just kind of doing an initial and then you kind of take it a step further
1: and then see if you're going to fly out and do the diligence and stuff? Yeah, so we're um we're getting a reputation as someone who is serious about doing preferred equity. So a lot of these deals have come to us through brokers. Um, through, you know, debt and equity brokers who are arranging preferred equity. Sometimes it's the real estate broker who knows that their partner has a gap. You know, there might be, you know, 50% leverage instead of 70. And instead of 30% equity, they're only getting 25. And so now there's this, whatever that would leave, a 25% gap in the middle of the capital stack. And so, um, you know, we're getting a reputation as somebody who can close those deals, even behind Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which is really hard to do. And, um, so, uh, that's one of the ways we're doing this. We, we, you know, we just spread the net as far as we can. I meet people at bigger pockets. I meet people online. I have people, you know, contact me. Like I had probably two or three people call me or email last week saying that they had deals. They wanted to know if we'd be interested. So there's just a whole wide array of how we do it.
0: Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, just kind of what's happening right now in the market. We're recording this kind of mid November. Um, This should come out within the next few weeks here. Um, You know, obviously multifamily has changed a lot because of interest rates coming up. Has has self-storage been impacted similarly as far as valuations coming down because of the debt situation or how is, I guess how how would it be similar and different to how multifamily has been affected or do you guys do a lot of fixed debt in general or i just love to know a little more about the debt you you know you're seeing
1: yeah i mean about probably 35 or 40% of the deals in our current fund are all cash mm-hmm. and then um the net, uh 50 i believe 50 plus percent are uh fixed debt a lot of those were long term fixed rate debt some of that's been assumed like i i can think of one that was like 3.7% other is, you know, new debt, but it might be, you know, hopefully 40, 50, 60% LTV. And then a very small percentage from one operator in our current fund is floating rate debt, mostly with rate caps. Um, So, and and it it was already, you know, acquired at a high rate in the first place. So the uh, underwriting already assumed about the current interest rate. Um, as far as how cap rates expanding have affected the values, yeah, I mean self storage mobile home parks rV parks um you know apartments they 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 have a similar you know they all have the same formula and your listeners know the formula because they've been listening to you but of course, just as a reminder, it's value equals net operating income divided by cap rate and so if the cap rate goes from and if I do math live it's gonna it's gonna be trouble, my friend, but here we go, <laughs> let me try. If the cap rate goes from four to six percent, I mean your your denominator just went up by fifty percent, which, you know, again uh, yeah. that could lower the value of the asset by fifty percent. And so, what are you going to do about that? And, and again, I, I I might I might have had the math wrong there, but you get the point. If a tiny move in cap rate can create a significant Increase or decrease in asset value, especially when the cap rates are really, really low at acquisition. So, how do you offset that? Well, uh, one way is long-term hold. I mean, if you've got if I if I've got an asset that I acquired in 2020 with 12-year debt on it, you know, at 3.7 percent, well, I'm not as concerned about that short-term movement in value. In fact, I might not be concerned at all. Um, number two um you uh look for mom and pop owned assets like the one i mentioned in new mexico and a dozen more we could talk about where the um where the net operating income improvement is able to keep up with or even sometimes outrun the cap rate expansion and so if again if if i bought an asset in phoenix and the cap rate was 4% uh let's say the income let's do let's do the math 100,000 in income net operating income divided by a 4% cap rate the value on that is 2.5 million if i did the math right in my head so it's 100,000 divided by 4 but if that's now 100,000 divided by 5 it's not 2.5 million now it's 2 million and you can check and see if I did the math right on that, Bronson. I don't know, but it's the same ratio, at least just by yeah. one point movement. You know, you lost 20% of the value. Well, if you can increase the net operating income by that same ratio, let's say 20%, then you could easily keep the same value of the asset. And in fact, we have a lot of assets that we've seen that we've reviewed and some we've invested in where the net operating income is able to outrun the cap rate expansion. At least so far, there's no guarantee that would continue, but, you know, as a public firm, we're not publicly traded, but we are public. We have to get valuations of our assets. And so far we've been pretty happy with the valuations we've seen.
0: Yeah, it's been interesting. I think a lot
1: of uh, multifamily investors. You know, we
0: have a deal, for example, we bought for sixty million in Jacksonville, and uh, you know, we increased rents by twenty five percent. But because of you know, it's it's it was eighty percent occupied and not ninety. You have to get bridge debt, which dramatically decreases the amount somebody's able to pay. And so we're looking at valuations of like forty million. Or less on a sixty million, and we look at it, we're like, man, we don't feel like we renovated. You know, two hundred ten of the units of the, you know, it was, it was a, almost a four hundred unit deal, and so we're seeing things like that. But it's really, I think, to me, really just you know, driven home the idea of long term fixed debt or assumptions or things that, uh, and those are very unique situations now, right? If you can find a, you know, three or four percent fixed kind of long term, seven eight years left, there are those out there. That was actually actually be a strategy now to sell your, your debt, you know, your long-term deals that you had with fixed rate and sell it at a premium because you're able to do it. Um, What are some things you think investors should be watching out for uh, either to be aware of and like concerned about, or uh, there are opportunities that you're seeing?
1: Yeah. So some opportunities, one thing we really like is RV parks. We've wanted to invest in RV parks uh, systematically for years And we didn't have an operator that knew how to do that. Well, we finally found one. And so we've been really excited to be investing in that. There's a ton of data around the RV park, RV, you know, sort of um, increase. I want to say explosion, but my wonderful uh, compliance director is going to be listening to this. And she (laughs) might not like the word explosion. Explosion. Uh, But uh, seriously, there's been a large expansion in... um, uh, RV uh, RV sales uh, five times as many people went out in an RV uh, their first time in twenty for the first time in 2020 as any previous year including uh, yeah. 2019 because you couldn't do already, anything
0: else right you pretty much had to stay home or you had an RV <laughs> yeah right
1: right so 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 since we're not in COVID anymore you might ask well wait a minute has RV has RV usage plummeted? Uh, New RV sales are down from 2021 and 22 to now because of interest rates, and there's no COVID, and the economy is slowing. But all those RVs that were sold, number one, are out there. Number two, we've got a first in world history, Bronson. We've got two firsts in world history. One is the remote work revolution allows people to travel and work. And so these RV parks that we're investing in have really good internet and cell service and allow people to travel there to work. Number three, we've got uh, another first in world history, and that is the RV sharing model. So like Airbnb and Uber, uh, you can actually lease an RV for a weekend or a week or a month now. And um, somebody you and I both know, Whitney Elkins Hutton, she bought an RV and uh she put it out there and she made a she made half of the money she paid for the RV in the first 6 months on one wow. of those leasing programs so that's a business strategy in itself but my point is all this is putting incredible pressure on RV parks which are obviously limited in number like everything else and so the RV parks um have uh you know the the nicer ones the ones with a lot of amenities, the ones with, you know, the Wi-Fi and cell phone service and lakes and, um, you know, fishing ponds and all these nice amenities are in very high demand. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, you know, it, it's,
0: I think it's just interesting to watch trends, right? There was a story of a guy who like, and I th- I've heard it multiple times. I think it's true, but he basically, I guess when you buy a new car, it doesn't show up on your credit report for like two weeks. And so this guy went out like during COVID and he got like over like a 10 day period or something, he got 30 new cars. And so his credit was totally jacked, but he took all those cars and he was able to just rent them out on Turo. And I kind of saw what was happening and he made a ton of money, right? So wow. the idea if you can get ahead of a trend, so this idea with RV parks is like, First of all, the RVs are they're out there, people are using them. People now have had an experience with them. And it's similar to how even Zoom calls. I used to do Zoom calls with investors, had a thousand Zoom calls starting four or five years ago, and half people didn't know how to use Zoom. Now, now, like if you don't know how to use Zoom, like every single everybody's grandma knows how to use Zoom. Like it's everyone knows how to use Zoom. So it's just interesting how trends change. And then the way people say, Hey, this is a way I can experience the outdoors. And you're right. I mean, good RV parks, you can be paying you know, eighty or hundred bucks a night to stay there, you know even with an RV. It's like that was you know old hotel prices. Now you're paying to have power and all the different amenities that go with that as well. Um, how many RV parks
1: have you guys purchased then? We have invested in three RV parks in our current fund.
0: okay. that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. yeah, I love looking at diversified things like that. Um, what would you say? I mean, obviously, no one has a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen, but um planning going forward, Um, Do you think rates are going to, you know, I think kind of right now we're kind of close to historical long-term norms, maybe a little higher, but historical, I mean, it's kind of where things have been. If you look at kind of ups and downs, do you think we're going to stay where we're at? Do you think there's going to be some crisis where the Fed has to all of a sudden provide liquidity and we're at a lower rate interest rate environment again?
1: Yeah, you know, I am not uh in a really good place i mean of course we know i can i can excuse myself away by saying you know those who live by the crystal ball will be forced to eat glass (laughs) but uh when i look at warren buffett charlie uh charlie munger howard marks and these other guys who won't really predict the direction i just think you know as much as i might have a little opinion i just think it's best just to say i really don't know
0: yeah well and that's that's a good point too because i think Uh, right now I've watched a lot of investors kind of start to get cold feet around real estate because they just seen some challenges in their deals personally, or maybe, uh, something they're operating or a house, or just just seeing that, okay, this is a challenging time right now with interest rates and other things. But, um, you know, you can really, the best time to invest is when uh, a lot of people are not investing. So the fact that we're seeing, I mean, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but it seems like we're seeing much better deals than we were a couple of years ago. Because it's just, deals have to really make sense. Like the one you mentioned in New Mexico, it's like, it's gotta be something that really makes sense. There there are no longer, at least for multifamily, at least there's no longer 30 buyers at the table, all competing when doing a million dollars hard day one. Like it's more of a, it's different types of situations. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely true. It really is. It's um, one thing I'll say is that Buffett and Munger say, they claim that in 55, maybe years of working together, they have never, made an acquisition or a disposition at all based on interest rates or the current economy. They're doing it because it's a, you know, the asset, if they're acquiring it, at least it has tremendous intrinsic value, meaning they believe the true or at least the potential value of the property is much, or in their case, business, much, much higher than what they're paying for it. Buffett said, you know, price is what you pay, value is what you get. And that's where he focuses his effort. And that's, that's what one we're the, trying to do as well.
0: That's one of the reasons we connect a lot, Paul. I, I quote Buffett all the time too. I think he's, he's one of the best investors ever. And so his, his yeah. quotes are absolutely incredible. Um, so if someone was just starting out, uh, what kind of uh, words of wisdom? I know you've been doing this a long time. Uh, what sort of just considerations would you uh, have for somebody who's new starting out?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, if they're starting out in commercial real estate investing, uh, the last one third of my book, Storing Up Profits, has advice for people starting out. We have seven different paths we've marked out in there. One is to stair step up from smaller to larger assets. Number two is to be a capital raiser, which has a lot of risk with the SEC. Three is to be a deal finder. And uh, I I know a guy doing that successfully right now. Um, uh, number four would be just to go big from day one. If you have a lot of money, you retired from the NBA or won the lottery, or got an inheritance. I haven't met anybody like that yet. <laughs> Still
0: um, waiting for that one, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Number five would be to get a job. And you might think, wait a minute, I want to fire myself. Somebody wrote a great book like that. <laughs> heard Why about would that I want to get a job? What's that? <laughs> I heard about that book. Yeah, right. And so why would I want to get a job? Well, the point is not to uh, take a long-term job, but to get a job you know, as a property manager for self-storage or an RV park or a mobile home park to learn the business from the inside out. Um, and then uh, let's see, path number six would be to uh, invest passively, uh, find somebody else and invest heavily with them and try to learn the business slowly through them. And then number seven would be to find a paid coach or an unpaid mentor. And so those would be seven different paths that I'd recommend. I talked to a guy the other day in Oregon who he actually did what I would do if I was starting right now in my 20s. He bought a small piece of land. I think it was a couple acres or less. And he built outdoor storage on it. Um, and, uh, he just, you know, basically, uh, set it up for boat and RV storage, got a fence, put an electronic fence on the uh, gate on it. And he actually had, I think he had three or $400,000 in it, if I recall, and he sold it for seven or $800,000 and now he's stair stepping up to the next level. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I like that.
0: Yeah, that's great. No, it's, there are many paths to do it. I always say, you know, if you have money, you can kind of go at it and try to find deals or passively invest on your own. A lot of people, uh, like myself, when I started, didn't have a lot of money, but I was just had the desire to learn. And it's, I think whoever you are, you know, if you invest in your own education, uh, that's the best investment you can make. Um, yeah. what's one resource that's kind of helped you on your path? Uh, Paul.
1: Yeah. You know, um, I think that, uh, the book that I mentioned earlier, the one thing, Mm-hmm. by okay. Gary Keller and Jay Papazon really helped because it reminded me, you know, that investing doesn't necessarily uh, have to be, uh, it, it, I, I was a shiny object chaser. I thought the more, the better, the more cities, if I can become a multi-family guy in five cities, that's better than two or 20 cities is better than five, you know? And um, just, just, That resource and and the One Thing podcast to go with it have really helped me remember to maintain our focus. And it's funny, Buffett says diversification is for people who really don't know what they're doing. (laughs) And I got mad at Buffett. I'm like, come on, how could you say that? And then I realized, wait a minute, he meant if one person diversifies, in other words, if one person tries, let's say Dairy Queen, which he owns, tried to go back and buy the paper company that made the cardboard and the paper bags for Dairy Queen and furthermore got back and bought the land where the timber was that they cut down the trees, that would be dumb. But for Buffett, diversification means having best-in-class operators at the helm of 108 different companies that he invests in. That's smart diversification. And I think the one thing would agree with that as well. I hope.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Diversification. Um, you know, he says, yeah, it's helpful when you, when you don't know what you're doing, but, and you know, it does, it cuts you both ways. So if if you have a loss, it will limit your losses if you're diversified, but it'll also limit your gains. So he said, he does at one point say, you only need three to six wonderful companies to get really wildly wealthy, which is kind of wild. If you think about it, or put, you says, put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket very carefully. Um, so I, I know people that are invested in 50 to 70 different passive deals. And I'm just thinking like, that is a full-time job. You're just like, like wow. that's so much diversification. But, uh, again, it, there, there gets to be a change where instead of putting 50 or hundred K per deal, you start putting, you know, two, three, 500 K in per deal. It just feels a little different. And it's kind of a mindset thing. I think even for passive investors, rather than, cause whatever your minimum is, you know, Paul, like a lot of like 80% of the people put the minimum in, right. So if your minimum is hundred K, like most people put hundred K in. But I think it's just having a, a real sense of, you know, what you want. Um, Paul, I just want to say, I, I just so appreciate you, all our interactions, man. I just, I always learn something. You're always adding value to others. I know you're also really passionate about human trafficking. Uh, it's one of my big, my big, my one thing is to try to end modern day human slavery in the world. So I'm working at that and, and even in a small way trying to do that. But I just want to appreciate you for all the value you bring me. Imagine, you know, I want people to check out your books. Uh, they're incredible, but how can people get in touch with you and follow what you're
1: doing? Yeah, they can follow me on Twitter, uh, X, at, uh, Paul Moore, at Paul Moore Invest, or they can come to my website. It's Wellings, W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com. And they can get some fun, free special reports at wellingscapital.com slash resources.
0: Awesome, Paul. Thanks so much for being here, man. Really appreciate you.
1: Hey, man. Same here. Great to see you again. Great Take care. You, thanks. All
0: right. So I love that interview with Paul Moore. Great guy. Uh, super down to earth, just really trying to see how he can help people really move the needle forward in their own life. And that's, I think, what this show is about really too, right? The Mailbox Money Show is just how can you start developing passive income for yourself? What are the things you can do? What are the tools that you need to be able to get there? A lot of times it just starts with learning. If you can just start learning, you know, the best investment you make is in your own education. You start educating yourself, you're going to start to learn. And when you you do something, maybe it won't go perfectly, maybe you'll make a mistake, but you'll learn. You'll learn something along the way. The Learning, I think, Is more important than just what it is you're investing in, because if you're learning, it helps. I mean, there's so many health benefits to it. You're growing, you're there's even for your spirit, it's great, but also for your wealth. And a lot of times, when we do have a loss, or we do lose money, it does actually, it can teach you something. If you don't learn, it doesn't teach you anything, obviously. But if you learn something, then nothing is wasted. And so I look at great investors; they've always. Uh, made mistakes, I've always learned. And by learning, that's how we get better and better and better. And so when to talk to really experienced investors, they've made plenty So say, hey, let me tell you all the mistakes. they've made." they're super open about it, but just a great way to be able to, to help others to grow. So check out Paul's stuff uh, online, Wellington's Capital. And uh, you know, again, check out my new book if you hadn't, it's called Fire Yourself, Replace Your Working Income With Passive Income in three years or less, it should be in the show notes, as well as uh, the description below here if you're watching the video. And look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Mailbox Money Show. You've been listening to the Mailbox Money Podcast. For more free resources, articles, and videos, go to bronsonequity.com. There you can download your copy of the special report, The Single Best Investment Strategy During and After a Pandemic. None of the information shared here is an offer to buy a specific investment, and this is for educational purposes only. Consult your financial, legal, and tax professionals and use your own common sense before making any investment decisions. Thanks for joining us, and be sure to tune in next time for more
1: mailbox money.